Thank you very much, Ian. As I looked around the room as our offering people were taking up the collection, I thought, well, there's our own very own wise men amongst us, isn't it, eh? I can say a contentious thing now. I could say, but I'm not going to ask you to do it, put your hands up if you watch the King's speech on Christmas Day. I'm not asking you to do it. I'm not asking you to do it. I didn't, not because I'm a closet Republican, but because there was dinner dishes that needed to be done afterwards and it took forever. So normally I don't recall ever seeing the Queen's or the King's speech on Christmas Day afternoon. Normally I'm quite happy going into the kitchen and letting my OCDs do their business and sorting out the mess that is the kitchen. Yet for avid royalists, the king or the queen as she was, is a feature for Christmas Day that's not to be missed. Certainly my grandparents would have stopped everything at three o'clock to listen to the queen. That's not quite the same in our household. You know, amongst the gospel writers, there was one who could almost be labelled a royalist. Four spectators can watch a football match, write a report, and you can guarantee that each one of them will tell the game as it was through different perspective. And so it was with the Gospels. In the Old Testament, the prophecy, the central theme is of the coming of a great king who will rule in God's promised kingdom. And it's Matthew who writes the whole of his gospel from the viewpoint that Jesus is sovereign. Mark, on the other hand, focuses on the servant Jesus. The birth is not important. It's not even mentioned in Matthew's gospel. For Luke, there's emphasis that Jesus is the son of man. So the beginning of his gospel, we get far more detail about the lead up to the birth and the birth narrative itself. Whereas for John, the focus is on Jesus being the Son of God. And from the outset, there's this emphasis on the divine nature of Jesus. If you add them all together, they combine and they, they describe Jesus' true nature, the sovereign God and the servant man. But this morning, I want to focus on Matthew's account, because he, to me, is the royalist. <laughs> For him, his gospel is all about emphasizing Jesus' kingship. He presents the Messiah King who's revealed to us here on earth. The King who is rejected by man. The King who will come again. And it's in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is portrayed in his royal colors. He begins his gospel with this really lengthy genealogy, tracing the ancestry of Jesus from the royal line of Israel. And very quickly, even in chapter 1, Matthew introduces this theme of rejection that's never far away from his thinking in his gospel. It's Matthew who stresses that before Jesus is even born, there's this danger of rejection. What does Matthew say that Joseph had in mind to reject Mary on the unborn child? He doesn't, 
But it's Matthew that notes this idea of rejection at the outset. It's only in Matthew that we are introduced to Herod and the Magi. And it all fits in with Matthew's aims in writing his gospel. Having traced Jesus to a royal line, he goes on to show that this birth is received with dread by a jealous earthly king. And that the Magi bring the baby Jesus royal gifts from the east. All these kingly references are building up all the time in his account. Luke presents the Christmas story as a lovely dovey Christmas card. That's Luke's account. We get this lovely picture of the nativity. Whereas Matthew, he changes the tack completely. He introduces the story of Herod. He changes this beautiful picturesque scene into one of nastiness. The warm glow of the stable is shattered by this account of the horrific slaughter of innocent children. And again, you look at the account and Matthew shows what his purpose is. The Magi ask the question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Herod was a horrible man. He wasn't nice. His actions would have been equivalent to modern-day dictators. Some of you come from countries that are ruled currently by horrible people who rule those countries in ways that are just abhorrent. Well, Herod was like that. He was cruel. He was merciless. He was also paranoid. And he feared the loss of his position and his power. He wasn't a Jew. He was ruler of the Jews because the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus had given him that position. So he wasn't a Jew. He'd been put there by the Roman authorities. He was a brutal man. He was so brutal, he killed his father-in-law, several of his ten wives, and two of his sons. There's a lovely head of the household, isn't it, eh? Wouldn't you just love to have had him as a relative? When Herod heard this statement from the Magi, to say that he was troubled was an understatement, a total understatement. And his reaction is placed in the account by Matthew because the reaction is actually a testimony itself. Herod fears what the Magi say is true. All they're asking him is a simple question. Where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? And immediately he flies off the handle. His reaction is one of ultimate fear. He knows that there is one who's been born who is the real king of the Jews. He knows he only sits on the throne by virtue of Rome. He has no claim whatsoever. 
And his hatred gives indirect testimony to the identity of the true king. And this is what Matthew's trying to put across to his readers. They say that a picture tells a thousand words. And this image of a furious, jealous, earthly king tells us all we need to know about the kingship of the infant born in the stable. It's an amazing reaction. And yet it's one of just three reactions in this account from Matthew. And I want to look at those three reactions this morning. First of all, then, let's look at Herod. How did he react to this news? Well, he launched a plan. He launched a plan to locate the baby Jesus so that he could destroy him. Not so that he could worship him. He might have told the Magi that he wanted to go worship as well. That was never his intention. Never. His plan was to destroy this infant. And when his plan failed because the wise men didn't come back and tell him where he was, he was enraged. And what did he do? He wiped out every male child in the vicinity of Bethlehem. That's what he did. It was a hostile, violent reaction. As far as he was concerned, Herod was the king of Israel, and there was room for only one king. No one else. And in order for him to stay king, the other king would have to go. And this reaction was typical of the whole of Herod's reign. He tried to kill the Messiah and failed. You see, Jesus had come to be a very different king. And Herod would never see that. So Herod's reaction is just the first of three. I don't know about you, on Christmas Day in your household, is there a routine? Do you open presents first thing in the morning? Is it five o'clock in the morning? We've all got to get up and everybody opens everything. Or is it a much more dignified way of doing it? Is it the night before? Is it Christmas Eve, like our friends in Europe would do? Or is it in the afternoon, once you've had your lunch and got the priorities right, had a good feed, we'll open our presents then? Is it... What kind of way is it? For us, we've had to change ours over the years. What started off as being first thing in the morning very early because we had to get to the army to do the meeting, has now changed. And because there are now so many presents, we decide to stagger it a bit. So at 7 o'clock in the morning, that's the earliest we get up on Christmas Day, I can assure you, we will open a few, just a few. Then we'll come to the meeting. Then we'll go home, have lunch. And then we'll open a few more. And then we stop. We decide, do you know what? We need a break. Let's have a cup of tea and a mince pie. And we have a break. And then we go back to it again. And do you know why we do that? We do that because we realize that at a certain point in time, there were so many presents that actually the excitement that comes with opening the first few presents 
quickly waned. And what happened? Indifference set in. Ah, oh, another present, okay. Oh, socks, okay. Uh, yeah, another game. Well, that's nice. Do you see what I mean? Indifference had crept in. Those early presents, those first presents, yes, it's exciting. But actually, with so many presents, indifference had crept in. And the way of getting around that was to stagger it. Right, we'll have a break now. We'll come back and we'll open them. We'll get the excitement for opening presents again in half an hour's time. The reaction of indifference happened on that day in Matthew's account of white as well. Because indifference was the reaction of the chief priests and the scribes. They weren't hostile like Herod. They were indifferent. These men were the spiritual leaders of Israel. They knew the Old Testament virtually by heart. And when Herod summoned them to his presence, when he told them about the arrival of the Messiah and asked where the Messiah was to be born, they didn't even have to look it up. They didn't even have to go to the library and pull it off the scroll off the, the shelf and say, right, I wonder where it is. No, 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 no. Micah rolled off their tongue straight away. They quoted it off by heart. And do you know what amazes me? If they knew that, if they knew it off by heart, if they were told that the Messiah had been born, why didn't they drop everything and go running themselves? After all, they'd been waiting generations for this moment. And yet their reaction was what? It was indifference. They were happy to answer Herod's questions, the quoted scripture, but then they did nothing. They stood there like lemons. And these are supposed to be learned men who could have put the signs together and realized, wow, the Messiah has come, let's go. But their reaction was indifference. Distracted by other things, they were indifferent to the most important thing that was ever going to come their way. And finally, we get the reaction of the Magi. These guys were humble seekers. They were looking for the King of Kings. Matthew's the only person to mention these people. He doesn't call them wise men. He doesn't call them kings. Nor does he say how many there were of them. They'd studied the stars. They'd come from the east to Jerusalem. And they'd asked, where is the baby born to be the king of the Jews? Magi was a Greek word. It referred to a class of Persian priests. And yet there are many commentators that feel that actually the term wise men is probably a more apt description because their orientation was pro probably more like astrologers or astronomers or of wise men. You've got to understand that at that time, looking to the stars was a religious tradition. Gods were in the heavens. 
And so it's natural to look to the heavens, to the stars, to planets, for information about God's wishes, because that's how they would reveal their wishes to us. Some planets, some stars were even identified with God. And that's what they were doing. They were looking to the stars, and suddenly they noticed something was different. And when they got this guidance, they acted upon it, and they moved, and they found Jesus, and they worshipped him. These were men with little or no knowledge of the Old Testament, but what they knew, they believed, and they followed. These men had the least knowledge of God. They lived 100 miles away. They were not part of the chosen nation. They were raised in a different religious tradition. And yet these are the ones that find him. While those who had the most knowledge didn't. Think about that for a moment. Actually, it's not so much that they found God as that God took extraordinary measures to lead them to Jesus. God reached out to them through their flawed astrological beliefs to give them a sign. God gave them directions through these indifferent scribes and priests who are protecting them from this hostile Herod men. And having followed all the signs, it guided them into Jesus' personal presence and God allowed them to see his son face to face. What did Charles Wesley say in that beautiful carol veiled in flesh the Godhead see hail the incarnate deity pleased as man with man to dwell Jesus our Emmanuel. This is what they were able to see. These visitors from the east were people of great wealth they didn't come empty handed They brought gifts of gold, frankincense of myrrh. Well, gold in those days, like it does today, represents wealth and power. Frankincense was in a perfume, an expensive perfume. Myrrh was used in ancient Egypt in embalming processes. And so hence Christian tradition has often interpreted this gift as being an indicator foreshadowing Jesus' death. And yet myrrh was used for something else as well. It was used at that time for the anointing of kings. Do you remember on the coronation day, there was that part in the king's coronation where these screens came out and they were paraded and they hid the king and there the Archbishop of Canterbury behind these screens had this holy oil that he embalmed the king with. Embalming kings with oils and perfume has been traditional in many circumstances. And actually, 2,000 years ago, what did they use to embalm kings with, to, to anoint kings with? It was myrrh. And so actually, the significance of this gift of myrrh was that they were bringing it to the king. To the king. Were they there to worship the king of the Jews? Or were they there to acknowledge God incarnate? Well, I think that meeting with Herod and the scribes made it quite clear that they were talking about the Messiah. 
not just the next person in the Jewish regal line. Their journey was to worship the Messiah, not an earthly king. Matthew doesn't tell us what the Magi thought or the, what they felt, but that on finding the child Jesus, they worshipped him. And for me, that suggests that Matthew wants us to understand that when these men found Jesus, when they met Jesus face to face, they knew they were in the presence of God. So Matthew, in presenting us with the birth of the King of Kings, shows us three different reactions to his birth. Herod, Herod's hostile to him. The scribes, they're indifferent to him. The Magi, they worship him. Which will you do? Whose lead will you follow? Will you be Herod-like and be hostile to the King of Kings? Or will you be like the scribes and be just totally indifferent to the wonder of this season? That this is God incarnate coming, stepping into our world? Or will you be like the, the Magi and will you be a seeker and a worshipper? The story of the visiting Magi isn't just one of intrigue, majesty and gifts. It's the story of people determined to find out Jesus and worship him to go where God leads, and to be prepared to change direction when necessary. So I've got one more question to ask you. Are you prepared to go where God leads you today? Are you prepared to change direction to where you are going in order to worship Jesus in truth? Because the people who are determined to find Jesus and worship him do indeed do that. There's a beautiful carol in the song, but I need to sing it every year. And I haven't sung it yet, but it seems to fit in well this morning. Because it asks the question and it enables us to ask questions about our spiritual journey. Because it simply says, who is he in yonder stall? at whose feet the shepherds fall. And then it gives us a response. Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet, we humbly fall. Crown him. Crown him, Lord of all. Herod, was hostile to Jesus. The scribes were indifferent. The Magi worshipped. Which will you do? Which will you do? Perhaps we can sing and that will just help us with our response because I'd like to think all of us here are seekers of the King of Kings. That on this New Year's Eve... We leave 2023 behind and go into 24 still desiring to be seekers every day. 
Our seeking will not stop. Our seeking should never stop. Our desire to find the King of Kings in our midst should never stop. So let's commit ourselves to be like the Wagi and worshippers and seekers of the King in our midst. Thanks, Louise.
You know, the wise men were open to something new. They saw something new, they wanted change, and they were willing to prepare room for Jesus and so set out in search of him. Well, may we do that as well. May that be our prayer today. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that these people, these wise men, these priests, these magi were directed by you because they were open to want to find something. And because of that, they journeyed, they made changes, they went not knowing what they would find, but there they found you. And so today, Lord, we just come and we simply say, throughout this Advent season, we've been challenged to prepare room, to prepare him room. And this day, as we think of going into a new year, we want to prepare room in our hearts to be directed by you, to be guided by you, and most importantly, to search for you each and every day. Lord, may we never be indifferent to you. May we never be through our living hostile to you. But instead, may we find you and worship you as the God, the King of Kings that you are. May it be so for us each and every day, always. Amen.